I pulled my gum out of my purse and I looked at it and I was like, wait a minute, this gum is purple and blue, probably totally synthetic. Sure enough, regular gum not only had the synthetic preservatives and colors, people don't even realize that they're chewing a piece of plastic. The industry was really two large players. No one had disrupted it. There were no startups, no small players. And I thought, wow, well, it seems like there's a real business opportunity. Hi, folks. I'm Connor Gaughan, and welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast where we're talking to the innovators, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are committed to building successful businesses that also help us build a better world. In the course of our work at Consensus, we've had the opportunity to have some really meaningful conversations with people doing some really amazing work. And sometimes little pieces of their wisdom stick around and pop back into my head in interesting ways. Specifically, I found myself thinking this week about something that regenerative farmer Nick Jackson of Jackson Regenerational Farm said on our Farms Across America docuseries. While discussing regenerative natural systems, Nick talked about the subtle but important difference between complicated and complex. I can't give due justice to the eloquence of how Nick described it, but the gist is this. Machines, like clocks, engines, and computers, are complicated. They can be tricky to understand because they have lots of moving parts but those parts ultimately work in a clear, one-directional sequence of cause and effect. Complex systems, like nature, work very differently. The elements of a complex system are interconnected. Each part affects every other part, and is affected by them in turn. That makes complex systems much, much more challenging for humans to fully understand. But it's really important that we recognize the difference, because it also means that complex systems cannot be solved in the same way that we fix a broken machine. Now, we're not talking about anything involving systems architecture today, natural or otherwise. But there is a reason why I was reminded of this complex, complicated thing. It's because today's guest got me thinking about a similar important distinction we should make between easy and simple, which I think is this. A lot of easy things are simple, but simple is not easy. Simple is hard. Making things simple requires deep insight into a problem and a ton of hard work. For instance, the simplest route between San Francisco and Marin County is to go straight across the Golden Gate Channel. But the iconic bridge that made that simple route possible required one of the greatest engineering feats of all time. I think that paradoxically, things often become complicated because complicated is in some ways actually easier. That is, complication often develops when we take the easy way around difficult challenges, instead of the simpler but not so easy approach of solving things head on. Our guest today is not someone who takes the easy way around but rather someone intimately acquainted with the complex work involved in transforming the complicated into the simple. So much so that she named her company after it. Karon Proschan is the founder and CEO of Simply, a snack company offering the first chewing gum brand in the U.S. made 100% from natural ingredients. Which does sound simple, but as I learned in our conversation, creating an all-natural gum and then bringing it to market to compete against some titanic companies was anything but easy, especially as a total bootstrap founder. She's a business leader with incredible vision, hustle, and entrepreneurship, who's committed to building a good business in every sense of the word, which is really awesome to discover. We had such a fun chat, and I'm excited to share it with you all. So let's go ahead and jump right in. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I'm really excited to have you. So before we get to the company, I want to hear about you and and what got you where you are. So let's start at the beginning. Where are you from originally? I'm from San Francisco. 
went to college on the East Coast, and then moved to New York. So I actually spent most of my adult life in New York, which I loved. And that's where Simply was born and where it's based. I started it in my kitchen initially, in my apartment in Union Square, and from there expanded and grew. And now we have a large facility in Brooklyn where we make all of our gum. Growing up in San Francisco, kind of the the hotbed of startups, was entrepreneurialism in your blood? Did you know you want to do it from day one? I think so. I think I did have that ambition. For a long time, I just didn't have the courage to go off onto my own. And so I took more of the traditional track. I did investment banking after college, you know, went into real estate finance, was sort of following the herd, I think. And, you know, finally was simply I decided that it was time to really strike out on my own. And, you know, the idea sort of came to me one day and I thought, you know, this is it. This is when I should go forth and do my own thing. And so I was really excited to finally take that leap. Yeah. I mean, I was in a very similar trajectory. Went to college across the road from when you went to business school. So yep. same same neighborhood. Yep. Uh, and did the same thing. Followed the herd, ended up in Wall Street working for an investment bank. You know, after the three analyst program, swore I would never do it again and quickly joined another bank, this time in right. Los Angeles. Right, right, right. And looking back, I remember specifically the moment where the light bulb went on and I was like, okay, that's it. I need to go pursue my own passion. Was there a moment like that for you when you kind of looked up and said, okay, I have the courage. I have the skill set. I have the knowledge. I have whatever was holding you back. You were ready. Yeah. I mean, of course, it was like you during those years of investment banking, almost every moment I was like, this is not for me. You know, so I knew that the whole way through. And I think it was after business school and, you know, the, the real estate market had slowed. So kind of work wasn't fulfilling. Mm-hmm. And I think that was when, and it, for me, it wasn't really a light bulb moment, but I think it was a sort of slow burn, you know, like, what what am I doing? It's time. And so I finally, I finally did it. And ironically, I'm actually not a very high risk person, even though I'm an entrepreneur, I am very risk averse. And I, uh, and so I think that's why it took me so long. But, you know, once I made the leap, I knew that it was the right decision. So was very, very pleased. And even, you know, in terms of how I got Simply Gum off the ground, I did take that more cautious, conservative mm-hmm. approach. So I didn't raise a ton of money out of the gate. You know, I made the product in my kitchen. I started walking around New York to different neighborhoods, shopping my gum to little stores. So was very much a bootstrapped, very frugal type of startup. Did you find that HBS was a good intermediary step, both in terms of the skills learned, relationships built, but also kind of an on-ramp to entrepreneurship? You know, yes, absolutely. And at the time, you know, when I went, it was still a lot of finance, hedge fund, that sort of thing. But I think the network mostly, you know, is what has stayed with me over the years. Sure. And and of course, there were skills learned too, you know, but I think it's really about the, the networking. Yeah. It is amazing. I mean, I did not do it and many days look back and think I probably would have had a lot of fun doing it. I'm not yeah. sure I would have like yeah. gotten much more tactical skills after banking for 10 years, but the stories of relationships and I see it in college friends of mine, you know, Jen Hyman was a good college friend of mine who's like HBS experience yeah, right. is yeah. the archetype of entrepreneurship born at business school. Yeah, yeah, I actually worked with her at Starwood. Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah, right after college. So that's after, awesome. And my investment banking, yeah, I went to Starwood Hotels for a couple of years. So yeah, 
That's so fun. Um, I mean, look, certainly people have done really well without going to business school, without sure. going to college at all. So it's by no means a requirement. But I think for me, I really enjoy the two years and I love school. I'm that kind of person. So, yeah. you know, the more school, the better for me. <laughs> I, mean, I feel like I still read the books that would be part of our curriculum as, an, you know, yeah. far out of college. Exactly. University. exactly. So you finished business school yeah. and you're in the workforce and you have this kind of idea. What, what was the source of this idea? What was the, the thing you noticed that needed to be solved? So for me, I had started kind of getting into natural products in terms of my beauty care and hair care, soaps and dishwashing detergent and things like that. And I started focusing more on what I was eating. I mean, this was already this was 10 years ago, but you know, it started emerging in the bar culture that yeah. you need to do this kind of stuff. And so I was doing that. And it was kind of this, I mean, the specific moment was when I was eating lunch one day and I was eating a very healthy lunch and had taken care to choose the organic salad and, you know, the the drink that didn't have any added colors and dyes. And then I pulled my gum out of my purse and I looked at it and I was like, wait a minute, this gum is purple and blue, probably totally synthetic. And so I started talking with a friend of mine about it. And he was like, yeah, you know, I don't know that there is natural gum. And I was like, yeah, that's interesting. And so I started, you know, went home, started researching it. And sure enough, there was no natural gum in the market. And it turns out that regular gum not only had the synthetic preservatives and colors and flavors, but also was made of plastic. So literally you were chewing on a piece of plastic. And that was horrifying to me. What was even more horrifying was that it's not listed on the label. So basically the gum lobby some years ago was able to get this pass where basically you only have to put gum base as your ingredient and gum base is a catch-all term for all kinds of synthetics. So people don't even realize that they're chewing a piece of plastic. And I thought that was fascinating. I thought it was so interesting that the industry was really two large players. No one had disrupted it. There were no startups, no small players in the space. I wondered why, you know, it turns out the gum is very hard to make. All of that felt really interesting in terms of the kind of dynamics around the industry. And I thought, wow, well, it seems like there's a real business opportunity here to do something that's premium, that's natural, that's plastic free in this kind of unsexy industry that's been around forever and has had very little disruption or innovation. And so it felt like a good enough idea that I should put some time into it. And so I did. And I started experimenting with making gum in my kitchen made not of plastic, but of chicle, which is a tree sap. And so got this tree sap in and I'm not a cook by any means, but started, you know, whipping up batches of this gum and eventually found a formula that worked. And that's when I actually did a Kickstarter and it was, you know, it was relatively, I think, successful on Kickstarter, you know, maybe like 50,000 or a hundred thousand or something that we sold. And the feedback was what was really important because all the feedback, once people got their gum was, oh my God, this is really great. This is amazing. I love this. And it turned out that there were a lot of people who had been looking for a natural gum or who would prefer a natural gum. So then after the Kickstarter, I took those funds and I kept on going, made more batches in my kitchen. And that's when I started shopping it around to the local stores. Fortunately, I lived in New York, which made it easy. And Walked into the Whole Foods Columbus Circle 
and they took the gum. Now, it took more than one visit. It took probably a year to get in. But back in the day, you were able to do that. I think now yeah. you're not allowed to do that. But back in the day, you were able to go into individual stores. And so the Whole Foods Columbus Circle was the first store that took the gum. So, you know, hand delivered it <laughs> in a little <laughs> paper bag. They put it on the shelves and it started moving really well. And so that was also a great proof point. It was like, wait, you know, they need more. They need more. It was flying off the shelves. I mean, were you doing any marketing as part of that? Yeah, or they no just, marketing. it was just... No, no, no. It was just me. It was me, need. no money, nothing, you know, just yeah. product. And so it started flying off the shelves. And then I was like, okay, we're on to something here. And I started going to all the other local Whole Foods. So then got it into Union Square and Upper West and Upper East and got it all over and then got it into other independents and other channels in New York. That's really how we grew the business. It was door-to-door hustling. I can imagine that moment, thinking about the original idea, online looking to find you know who else is doing it. Yeah. With kind of a business school mentality going, okay, the gum market is billions. Yeah. The natural food market is growing exponentially. Right. That Venn diagram is pretty compelling. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And clearly had product market fit day one if without any marketing at all, it's flying off the shelves at Columbus Circle Whole Foods. Right. And in addition to the kind of natural piece, we did very new packaging, right? So all gum looked the same because yeah. it was all from the same two companies. And I wanted something that was really minimal and sleek and premium feeling. And so spent a lot of time in terms of the brand and coming up with packaging that would signify this is natural and different. And I think that was very worthwhile because as soon as it was on the shelves, people knew that this was something different. How did you come up with the name, speaking of packaging? I mean, it definitely took a long time and went through a bunch of names. Ultimately, you know, simply it was, there are pros and cons, you know, I mean, the cons were that simply is a common name and it is used in a lot of different foods, but it's such a powerful name that it felt like the pros outweighed the cons in this case. And so we went for it. And I think it suits us really well. And right now the brand does stand for an unusually simple brand, making unusually simple products. That's our positioning. You know, simple is basically what we do. I want to go back to this vision of you in your kitchen. Because I lived in Manhattan for five Mm -hmm. years and I think my kitchen, like I could touch it from my bed. (laughs) Exactly. So how did you even know to start the first batch? And then how did you know how to iterate? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't, you know, I, I looked at the back of regular gum and I kind of started thinking about how to reverse engineer it. Okay. So instead of the artificial flavor, let's use natural flavor. Instead of the plastic base, let's use this tree sap and, you know, not put any preservatives instead of these chemical preservatives. And so it was really just reverse engineering it. And in terms of the proportions, I mean, it was pure guess. There is no recipe. Right. So it was literally trial and error. And so that's why that process did take a year as well. Do you remember like the first batch that you tasted? Um, I think the first batches, you know, I mean, they were okay, but <laughs> yeah. but certainly, you know, not the best. You know, it took a lot of experimenting. It really did. I mean, when I look back, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I did all that. But I was just very motivated at the time. Because <laughs> you have like a whole group of friends that were your test tasters. You're like, hey, yes, everyone, yeah. everyone's having come after dinner tonight. Yep, definitely <laughs> gave it to all our friends to taste test. And, you know, and I think it was a very, the gum has a nice soft chew. And I think that appealed to people as well. So, you know, people, once they learned that regular gum had plastic, I think that was really 
a key thing. That education piece is really important. I think even now, probably, you know, we still don't have a ton of money to do marketing. And so I think there is still a huge segment of the population that doesn't realize that regular gum actually contains plastic. Right. So you go into Whole Foods, and I'm curious to hear like the sales pitch, because it, even though it was possible, I'm sure that did, that did not make it an easy sell by any stretch of the definition. It was like merchandisers whose job is to go find local products and like put them into local stores. Like there's now a process for this nationally within big companies like Whole Foods. But back then, it wasn't easy. So how did you get in the door? How did you find the right person? What'd you say? Yeah, I mean, back then, I think they did have some of those processes in place, but we didn't have access to that. You know, I didn't know who the local forager was. Yeah. I don't know that... You know, I had that email. I'm assuming I tried to cold email people and probably got no response back. So I went in and, you know, went to this, just the buyer, the, the candy buyer at this one store at Columbus Circle. And he was an assistant buyer. And I said, you know, you guys need natural gum. It doesn't exist. You don't have any natural gum. And so, I mean, the great thing about being first to market was that we could just easily say, look, you don't have this. It's just complete white space, right? Like you yeah. do not have anything like this. And he recognized that. And so he was like, okay, yeah, well, maybe, you know, maybe we need a, a gum. And you guys, you know, had this natural gum. So he asked his boss, the manager, and the manager said, okay, you can go ahead and bring it in. And so then that's what started the process. But it, that process took a year because it was basically, they had this program where they would let the individual store managers bring on local products that they thought were a good fit for their store. And so, but there's a lot of paperwork and they're also busy doing their actual day job. And I, and I didn't want to stalk him. And so like, you know, a few weeks later I go and he's like, you know, busy unpacking boxes of merchandise on the floor. And he's like, look, I don't have time to talk to you right now. I'm like, okay. You know, so then I'm like, oh, let me wait, you know, another few weeks. And so I would sort of check in once a month and sometimes he'd be there. Sometimes he wouldn't because our schedules are always changing. And, you know, half the time I would go there, he would be busy actually doing his job, putting out the merchandise. So we very, very over a very slow period where, you know, we were able to do all the paperwork. I do my side of it. He'd do his side of it. And eventually we got approved and we got that first PO, which I still have a photo of somewhere, but it was for, you know, probably 36 packs of gum. Right. <laughs> and I didn't even know how to deliver it because, of course, usually all the merchandise comes in through distributors on big trucks and pallets and goes to the back. And here I was carrying my 36 little packs. And so, you know, I went into the back and the receiving and the guys were like, oh, okay, you know. <laughs> so I, <did laughs> that, and then I just went onto the floor and I unpacked it and put it on the shelf. And that was that. And then it, it flies off the shelf. You restock. You're in more stores in New York. How did you scale? Like, it does, at some point, I would imagine you're thinking to yourself, "Oh gosh, how am I going to? How are we going to actually fulfill all this? Like, we have it. Yeah, yeah." So then, you know, realized that we would need actually some kind of facility to make the gum, and so moved into a um, an incubator in Long Island City, a little kind of food incubator where we rented a room and made the gum there. So did that and worked out of that facility for actually a while, I mean, probably a couple of years and just hired more and more labor as we needed to. The process was very manual. Initially, you know, we didn't invest in any equipment up front, but we did use labor. We were able to scale that way and then, you know, just kept trying to sell. And so we were able to get, as I said, into the other Whole Foods and then 
We also um, very quickly got into Amazon and that was a great channel for us and still is. So yeah. So then just kind of continued to build up our labor force. And then once we kind of had uh, a stable business, then went out, left the incubator and got our own space in Brooklyn and um, have slowly expanded that space over time. And now have also invested in, you know, various kinds of equipment and machinery to help scale the process. Yeah, it's unique because you're you're making your products in New York City. Uh, yeah, that's right. We, we make them and that's very rare. You know, most food manufacturers, most food companies outsource the manufacturing. We actually do it in-house. So that is very unusual, but we're really proud to be doing that. You know, we're proud to have created manufacturing jobs in Brooklyn. And so we still continue to invest in that facility. Now we are actually expanding beyond gum. So we've recently launched gummies as well as a chocolate candy bar platform. So we're really excited about those as well. Those products we do outsource right now because we don't have the capability in Brooklyn to make all of that. So we kind of do a hybrid approach where we use some co-manufacturers and we do the gum in-house. And was there a point at which you realized to really make this jump to, to national scale, we need to bring in capital. I mean, yeah. So I, I'd say that after we got into Whole Foods, that was kind of, yeah. that was the big thing, you know? So at that point I was able to raise capital and that helped us grow. And then, you know, we're a profitable company. And so we haven't had to raise since then, which has been really great. So we've just kind of, you know, continue to spend what we have and grow in a very thoughtful, profitable, organic way. Um, and that approach has worked really well for us. What was the roadshow like? I mean, t- talk, talk to us about the highlights and lowlights of of hitting the road asking for capital. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to think back. You know, it was so long ago. Of course, it took a little bit of time. It didn't take that long. You know, sure. I think that people were starting to get interested in food. You know, it was kind of right before the big food wave, but people were very interested in it. I think that our idea was interesting. And then, of course, the fact that Whole Foods had taken it. So what we found was like, once we just, it was like, I had a lot of meetings, it was hard to get that lead, but once we got that first commitment, then everyone just follows on, you know? So then it was easy to just, yeah. So then it was easy to just complete the round and we ended up having a lot of angels as well who want to participate. But yes, it's all about just getting that one lead investor and then everything else falls into place. Were the folks that you talked to or the folks that committed, were they already familiar with kind of the food space, the natural food space? The sustainability space, or were they more traditional institutions? Like, what was the kind of profile that you found most successful? It was, you know, small funds that, yeah. I mean, in our case, it was just one small fund that invested in the rest were angels. And it was a small fund that had done a few food investments before. Yes. And did that help open up your kind of community of, to more entrepreneurs who were in the same sorts of spaces? Or, or had you already kind of gotten to know folks out there that were building companies like yours? I didn't know anyone in the food space. And so, yes, that's right. That opened doors. And then we started going to the expo west of the world. You know, we started getting out there in terms of trade shows and going to networking events and people started seeing us in store. And so we started getting a lot of inbound. So as we grew, we did start getting a lot of inbound interest from investors and, you know, from other entrepreneurs looking to connect and that sort of thing. I mean, you mentioned kind of being a little ahead of the wave of, of folks in the investment space, but in the consumer space too, I imagine, just who are talking about thinking about food more deliberately. I'm curious, as you've kind of looked the last 
decade, let's say, where that's really become something that a lot of folks focus on. What you've noticed about the trends in the world and how it's changing, what are you seeing now relative to how people think about, talk about the business of food, natural food? What what does the landscape look like? Well, I mean, I think, you know, certainly food is probably not immune to all the other stuff that's been going on in the market. So right now people are looking for profitable companies. I think that for a while it was about just throwing money at these companies that had ideas and it didn't matter whether they're profitable or, you know, what their scaling path was. It was just, let's just fund these. But I think that pendulum has definitely swung back. And I have heard of a lot of food companies who are struggling now to raise capital and who've kind of gotten themselves into this bind where they have some revenue, they have a business, but they just need more and more money and no one wants to give them money right now. And so I don't know what's going to happen to all those businesses. In our case, I always wanted to make sure that we were never in a position where we had to be dependent on someone else. And so that's why I didn't want to raise a ton. And that's why I also focus on profitability and not just, you know, spending huge amounts to acquire customers. What about on the consumer side? It feels like consumers are more aware and, and demanding. Yes higher quality, healthier, more natural products. And so kind of inherent in your business is a positive change for health and and the environment. So talk to us about that trend as you see it. And it's funny because we we talk about this a lot internally, um, you know, in terms of now our positioning as we're growing and expanding. I think that for a while, you know, over the past couple of years, there was this trend towards very engineered foods or what we'll call over-engineered. So yes, they were natural, but it's like all the fake meats and the fake proteins and, you know, the plant meats and the plant proteins and this and that. And it's like, okay, yes, they're vegan and plant-based, but they don't resemble anything really natural anymore because they're so engineered. And I think in our case, we're sort of a rejection of that. We want to get back to just being really simple ingredients you understand, you know, ingredients that you're familiar with. What we say is, you know, food that you could make at home if you really wanted to. Well, you did it. And I did, right? Like I did. <laughs> um, and so that's what we stand for is just this very kind of simple, unusually simple kind of company. And I think that we're going to see a trend towards more of that now. Mm-hmm. I think that there is starting to be a rejection of this kind of over-engineered stuff and all the synthetic sweeteners. And, you know, the sugar thing is very fraught and controversial, but we use sugar. You know, we use some cane sugar sometimes. We use coconut sugar sometimes. We do have sugar-free gum as well that contains xylitol. But for a while, you know, there's also this big sugar-free sort of trend and They're using a lot of ingredients that perhaps aren't the best for your digestive system. We really want to move towards this unprocessed, very simple, back-to-basics kind of mentality. And obviously, it's important to you. It's part of your personal passion. But why do you think it it seems to have resonated with consumers? Like, Why is this important socially? Because life is complicated, right? I mean, life is already complicated. And so... We're a brand that they can trust. Like, okay, I just want gum. You know, I just want a piece of chocolate that I know is going to be good and not bad for me. And so we we give them that, something just simple that they can reach for. Yeah. And it seems like it pays off, right? That, that there's a financial reward for pursuing 
the healthier, more natural product. And obviously that was part of your your original calculation, but how do you think about that balance of kind of the financial success and doing the right thing for your, your, your body, society, the world, the environment? Like, how do you think about that, aligning those two? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it is a difficult balance because, you know, our products are priced higher than a conventional mass product. And we obviously have seen a lot of inflation recently. You know, we we know that consumers are having to spend a lot more on their groceries. And so we understand the struggles of many Americans right now. It is a lot to ask someone to pay an extra dollar or two dollars or three dollars for a product that has those better ingredients. And that's why we just want to do our best to live up to our promise of making products that are delicious and high quality and products that you can trust that are very simple. And, you know, we hope that our customers recognize the value in that. And, you know, we think that they don't mind. Um, You mentioned chocolate, you mentioned gummies. What are kind of, what's the future look like? What are the products that you're excited about? What's coming online in 2024? We got a, a brand new year. What's next? Yes. Yes. So there's a lot in the pipelines. We have some new items coming out on the chocolate front that are launching in April. We're very excited about it. We have additional ideas in the chocolate space. We have a lot of ideas in this sort of snacking, sweet snacking kind of space. And I think that we're really excited about where we're going because, you know, we started in gum, we went to mints, and now we see ourselves as being a player all across confection. You know, the brand right. is great. It's extendable. People love what we stand for. And so as long as we keep making products that are delicious and that have integrity, I think that we're going to have a bright future. Yeah. The case that I worked during training of investment banking back in summer 2002 when I graduated was the, um, the, the fake merger of two international confectionery companies. Ah, um, yes. Which makes yes, me yes. ask the question, as you guys get bigger and, and as you know, the big food snack companies clearly are paying attention to Mm -hmm. the natural food trend. Do you think that they're likely to either jump in the space through acquisition, through growth? Are you kind of seeing, hearing rumblings or watching them, you know, look at the space? And and what do you think about that as a, both an evangelist for the kind of product, but also a competitor? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's great for them to get into the space. I think that they are looking at it. You know, I think they do look at it. There have been acquisitions in the space. You know, Mondelez acquired a company called Hue Chocolate, which was kind of a paleo chocolate that happened a couple of years ago. You know, I think it's great that large companies want to get into the space. They see the importance of the space. And hopefully when they acquire these companies, you know, they can help scale them and have them reach yeah. a, a broader audience. When you think back to kind of San Francisco as a kid wanting to kind of maybe have that entrepreneurial life, what do you think that that kid would say about what you're doing now? I think that kid would say, why didn't you do it earlier? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think in hindsight, yeah, I probably didn't have so much to fear about taking that leap. You know, for me, the leap came later. It came after business school. It came after I'd already been in the workforce. But I think that if you have a good idea... There's no reason you can't do it earlier. Right. I love that. I sometimes say one of my biggest regrets is spending so long in banking. In retrospect, I don't know what I was doing there. Yeah. So I knew so I early you. in that yeah. that it was time to go. And I just kept... You actually said it. I think said it too. You, most of the time you're so busy, you don't even think about what else is out there. It's when things stop getting so busy that you have a moment to set, step back and go, wait a second, this is not at all 
what I want to be doing with my life. Yeah, exactly. When you talk to young people, either aspiring entrepreneurs or just, you know, head back to HBS to give a lecture, are you hearing this kind of desire for the next generation to find new pathways that are that are more fulfilling? And, and how are you kind of coaching or mentoring folks to do that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that this next generation is all about that, all about, you know, forging their own paths, finding ways to to fulfill their own dreams and do good for the world. So I've been really impressed by everything that I've seen and heard. I think, you know, I just encourage people to go forth, you know, quickly. It depends, of course, on the idea, but I always say you don't have to raise a lot to get started, right? I mean, if you look at my path, I did the product first. You know, I know that's not possible depending on what kind of company you're building, but if you can just manage to get your minimum viable product done, then you can go and you can shop it around and pitch it and you can start getting that interest. And if you get that interest, then you can raise money on the back of that interest. And so, you know, I always say you can kind of go for it in this more, I don't know if it's a slow way, but in this kind of more deliberate manner. Yeah. And, you know, and, and if it's a physical product like what ours was, then you can absolutely sell it to stores right away. You know, you can go in and start pitching it. And if the stores don't want it, they'll they'll tell you why. And you'll get that feedback and then you can go and iterate. I also say with physical products to get them on Amazon right away because anyone can look on Amazon. It's a marketplace. You just put it on Amazon and you're immediately going to get feedback in the form of sales and how fast it sells as well as the reviews. You know, we took all that feedback into account when we first started and we definitely iterated as we saw those reviews come in on Amazon. So Amazon's a great way to reach a national audience really overnight. Well, I imagine it's a little different now, just the business environment, but I, I would imagine Kickstarter as well was like a very cool way because it wasn't just customers. It was evangelists. It was people who whose feedback was probably more meaningful because they were mm-hmm. taking that leap of faith. Yeah. Kickstarter was interesting. I mean, Kickstarter at the time was was definitely a great way for us to get that initial word out. Yeah. Absolutely. We've had a couple great interviews with folks that built off Kickstarter. One is this cool outdoor wear company in Arkansas called Lives In. And he tells a great story about how like that's become not just, it's not just about the place to sell the product. It's become his customer test yeah. bed for product. It's become, you know, his ambassadors, his marketing ambassador yeah, program, right? Like it has potential to be so much more than just your deficit financing vehicle, which it really has been for a lot of people too, which is great. Yeah, that's true. What about for for you next? As you kind of look at the, the year ahead, what are you personally most excited about seeing in 2024? And whether it's big innovations that you see on the horizon in the world that are you know impacting you or business or just stuff that you, you think is a, you know a, a reason for optimism. I mean, that's a good question. I think well, I have two toddlers, a two year old and a one year old, so <laughs> I think they're going to keep me busy in this uh, upcoming year. And they're also a source of optimism, of course. You know, the new generations. So I think I'm, you know, on a personal level, going to be keeping busy with work and family, and kind of, you know, figuring out that age old sort of balance of how do sure. you, you know. How do you manage both? And, you know, it's had its moments. It's been difficult in in many regards over this past um, year because the kids are so young. But I'm, you know, figuring it out. And I think in 2024, that's going to be one of my big goals is to kind of try to get that balance worked yeah. out and also carve out time for myself too. I mean, looking way downstream with a two-year-old and a one-year-old, do you have thoughts around 
what you hope your legacy will be when it comes to thinking about your kids or like, you know, what do you want them to, to think about mom when they're our age? I haven't thought much about legacy, but I think it's that courage to go off and do what you want to do without following the herd. I think that's what I would want them to take from my experience. Awesome. I mean, most importantly, give us a sense of where folks should go to get more information, to buy product. Where do you want us to send people? So you can find us at this point, many stores across the country, you know, Whole Foods, Target, Walmart, all the big chains. You can find us on Amazon, of course, and our own website, simplygum.com. So we want to be awesome. everywhere you are. So <laughs> hopefully we have somewhat achieved that. I think so. I certainly recognize it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been really fun to have you. I can't wait to get this show out there to the world. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Once again, big thanks to Karone Proschan for joining us on the show today. She's an amazing source of information and inspiration for anyone who's aspiring to start their own business, and also a great refresher for those of us who already have. I must confess that she has permanently affected my relationship with mainstream gum. It's pretty hard to go back to chewing on plastic once you know what's in there. But hey, when you can't imagine going back to the old kind of product, that's the mark of a great innovation. As Corone mentioned, if you'd like to try Simply for yourself, their products are available in most major supermarkets, or you can find them online, either at Amazon or through their website, simplygum.com. You can also connect with them on social media at Simply Gum, or you can connect with Carone on LinkedIn at Carone Proschan. That's C-A-R-O-N-P-R-O-S-C-H-A-N. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas sparked by today's conversation, or if you have a great idea for a future conversation, please email us at CIC at consensus-digital.com. That's C-I-C at consensus-digital.com. Write in, let us know what you're thinking about. We'd love to connect and hear from you about the show. You can also connect with me directly on LinkedIn and threads at CKGON. That's at C-K-G-O-N-E. And as always, if you've liked the show, please give us a follow, a like, or leave a review wherever you listen. It really helps us grow our reach and continue bringing you more awesome conversations with the business leaders you want to hear from. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week with a brand new conversation. Consensus in Conversation is hosted and executive produced by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode was produced by Will Gatchell and Jeff Rock with editing from the good folks at Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to the Consensus team, including creative director Kate Tucker, Greg Hurgle on research, and Patrick Gallagher on strategy. Consensus in Conversation can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen. Consensus in Conversation is a podcast by Consensus Digital Media, produced in association with Reasonable Volume.